support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, my guest is Cindy Cohen, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF. Now, if you're an internet user of a certain age, like me, you know the EFF as the premier civil liberties group for the internet. In the early days of the internet, the EFF fought pitched battles against things like government surveillance, digital rights management for music and movies, and speech regulations that would violate the First Amendment. Those fights were important, and they shaped the internet as we know it today. But now the EFF is 32 years old, and a lot of those controversies aren't really about the government anymore. Private platform companies like Twitter and Apple and Google have an enormous amount of power over what people do on the internet. Government regulation doesn't seem like nearly as much of a threat in comparison. In fact, a lot of people think government regulation is the solution to private power. So I wanted to talk to Cindy about balancing between consumer advocacy and civil liberties in this, the time of tech giants. Here, I'll give you an example. When the FBI was trying to get Apple to unlock the iPhone that belonged to the San Bernardino shooter in 2016, the EFF stood behind Apple and praised the company for not giving in and providing a backdoor to the iPhone's encryption. At the same time, the EFF was highly critical of Apple last year when the company introduced a function that hashes your photos and then matches those hashes to a database of known child abuse material, essentially scanning the photos on your phone. That's a tricky balance, and it's repeated across the entire industry right now maybe most of all in content moderation, where the First Amendment prevents the United States government from passing moderation standards for social media companies. But those same social media companies are always under a ton of pressure to change how they moderate. So you know, of course, we talked about Elon and Twitter. It's a good one. Okay, Cindy Cohen, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Here we go. Cindy Cohen, you're the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you. I have been dying to talk to you forever. I went from being a sort of hopeless college student to knowing I wanted to be a lawyer to probably this career because the EFF showed up in my life like a very formative moment, like in the Napster era, it all happened. Um, So it's a bit of a thrill to talk to you. (laughs) I just need to do a good job by the audience of Decoder and start at the beginning. So let's start at the beginning and not fall deeply into the weeds of the EFF right away. Tell people what the EFF is and what it does. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation is 32 years old. We are the first, the oldest, and the biggest digital rights organization in the world. And we were founded by some very forward-looking folks who realized that as the world moved online, we were going to need people who were there to stand up for users and to stand up for, you know, basic civil liberties and rights. I sometimes say, you know, we make sure that when you go online, your rights go with you. So that's how we started. We have about 100 people now, and we kind of have three big strains. We have uh, lawyers, and we have activists, and we have technologists. And, you know, we work together on things to try to bring about a better digital world than the one we we might otherwise have. So that's really interesting. Usually when you think about rights, you think about governments. I really want to talk to you about the interplay between users and giant corporations and governments, which seems more complicated than ever. 
You said three big strains, lawyers, activists, and technologists. Is that how you're structured? You have a legal division, an activism division, and a technology division? Yep, absolutely. And then we have, you know, our creative types. We have artists on staff and other things who kind of sit in the middle and help all of us. So a hundred people, lawyers, activists, technologists, some artists, where does the money come from? (laughs) EFF is member supported. Uh, We have about somewhere in the neighborhood of 45,000 members who give us their hard-earned cash to make sure that uh, users' rights are protected. We also have some support from big philanthropy, you know, the MacArthur's and the Open Society Foundation. We actually have our, our own podcast, How to Fix the Internet, is supported by the Sloan Foundation. So we have some foundation support, and we also have a little bit of corporate support. But over half of our money comes from individuals and over half of that comes from people who give us a thousand dollars or less. So we're not beholden to anybody. Our job is to say what's best in the public interest. And luckily our funding is broad enough that if somebody wants to come to us and have some strings attached about what we might have to do, we just <laughs> tell them no. And, and that does happen. One of the interesting things uh, about talking to folks in your position I ask questions like, what's the job like? And depending on the setting, sometimes people are like, there's a big side. And it's like, I didn't realize this whole job was raising money. <laughs> uh, and sometimes, you know, that, or we're like on a stage and like the job is great. Is that the background for you as executive director? Are you out raising money a lot? I would say it's about a third of what I do. I'm pretty lucky because EFF is a membership organization. We have a membership team. So most of the money doesn't come through, you know, me as the executive director meeting with somebody important and shaking their hand. There's a piece of that. But most of our money comes from people who see what we do out in the world, come to our website and donate. We also go to tech conferences. So if you go to, you know, DEF CON or any, especially on the hacker side conferences, there's usually an EFF booth there and people will come by and, you know, sometimes they just throw cash at us because they don't want their name associated. And and sometimes there's, there's other things. So I don't have to do as much because of the way EFF works as a lot of other executive directors. And I get to do other things like I get to, you know, I actually directly participate in a good chunk of our work. I'm, I'm the lawyer on the top of the pleadings on things that we do. And I also, you know, in the background, really just help feed the cats. You know, uh, <laughs> EFF is a hundred very committed, very smart, very good activists and making sure that they are all pointed in the same direction and get all the care and feeding that they need to be able to focus on their jobs is a whole other chunk of, of what, you know, what happens in my day. Let's talk about that group of people. So you, you said you had lawyers and activists. Are the lawyers filing lawsuits all day? Are they writing amicus briefs? What are they actually doing with that time? And how do you kind of structure that? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on what the issue needs. But yeah, we do direct representation of people. We've taken at least one case to the Supreme Court and we've been amicus in you know almost every case that you've ever heard of from the Supreme Court that has tech in it. We have participated as amicus. Sometimes we help people get counsel if it's not a case that we can handle. We have a whole support network of cooperating attorneys who do that. We also get engaged in policy debates as well. So we have a legislative team. And so we work in the in Congress. We do uh, work in the state legislatures, especially in California, because so much of tech is based in California. So if you have a good law in California, you protect a lot of people. We have an international team. We've been very involved in a bunch of the EU right now is increasingly regulating tech, and we try to have a voice in that as well, as well as places around the world. So, you know, I think on an average day, it's hard to predict what the lawyers will be doing. Again, we do the whole range of things, and we try to take a look at the topic and try to figure out, you know, which of the tools in our toolbox is the right one for this problem. But we're not afraid to actually just stand up in front of the judge and say, you know, this is the way the Constitution should be interpreted. And I think I think for our lawyers, every single one of them, you know, that's, that's a core <laughs> piece of why you come to EFF is that you get to do that work. You get to stand up for the public interest in the, in the judicial branch. Um, but, you know, we, we don't leave the other two branches out. <laughs> uh, I feel like that I can guess that probably the, the way you measure success there is wins and losses in court, right? That's pretty easy for lawyers. You mentioned yep. activists. What do the activists do and how do you measure their success? 
I mean, the activists will um, run campaigns, you know, write your congressman. There's a couple of bad copyright bills right now in Congress that our activists are trying to get people to, you know, have their voice heard and, and make sure that, you know, Congress understands where the public interest lies. Sometimes I think if you sit in Congress, you hear from all the different business groups. And then there's, you know, there's the civil society, the voice that's the users is either just a couple people or nobody at all. And you might begin to think that certain situations are just about one company versus another, right? Uh, we saw that in the copyright fights where often when we go to Congress, they'd think, well, isn't this just a fight between Google and the other technology companies and the content industry, you know, Hollywood? And we would be like, no, actually, you know, the users are here, right? You mm -hmm. know, people want to be able to make videos. They want to be able to play with their, their culture. That voice has to be there. So the activists run a lot of that work. They also, you know, help make sure that what the lawyers and the technologists are doing gets out into the world, whether that's through blog posts or press releases or events. Occasionally, we'll do big splashy things to try to draw attention to things, you know, when Apple decided that it was going to scan people's devices for a couple different reasons. One of them they have now dropped thanks to work from us and others. We actually hired a plane and flew a banner over <laughs> uh, the Apple headquarters in Cupertino at one infinite loop saying Apple don't scan our phones. That's not the centerpiece of what we do, but occasionally, you know, you gotta, you gotta have fun and draw attention to things. This is like the classic decoder question. That's a lot, right? You're filing lawsuits, you're international, there's different kinds of laws in this country versus another. You're doing activism, you're flying planes. How do you make decisions on how to do all that stuff or how to prioritize that stuff? Well, there's two things that are important. First, it's an art, not a science. There's not a algorithm or rubric that we go to. We look at, you know, where can our skills do the most good at the level that we can do them? And is this something that if we don't do it, it might not get done? Those are two big things. Occasionally, we'll decide, look, the whole civil society community is going to gather together and do this thing together. And we want to be a part of that. I would say that's probably third on the list because we try to be our first thing to do is to do the thing that nobody else is doing. And so that's kind of how we look at it. So when a case come in and people come to us all the time with issues, we look at, you know, is this just going to help this one person or is it going to help a whole lot of people if we do the case? Is it the size that we can do? You know, some kinds of litigation, you know, if you don't have a million dollars, don't even try. Patent litigation is one of those things. So in the patent space, while we do a lot of work, we can't do direct mm -hmm. patent litigation because it's just too expensive. Uh, same with antitrust. Those are things where the legal system has to be fixed so that little guys can play before EFF could really make a difference. And, and we work on lots of other ways to try to make that world happen, but we don't do the direct litigation. So it's a conversation. And the, I guess the other piece of it is that the people doing the work are the ones who decide. So my lawyers decide what the right cases are. It's not an outside committee. It's not even our board of directors because the people who live this all day long are the right people to decide. Same with the technology. We know EFF builds a few technologies. We have technologists. They decide what they need to do next and what's the best use of our resources. We have processes to make sure no, you know, people don't wander off and that we stay on mission. But in general, I think the best people to make the decisions about what to do are the people who are doing the work. And that's the way EFF is structured. Yeah, that's fascinating. When I was younger and I first started paying attention to the greater happenings of the internet, I would almost always read about the EFF and the position that they were taking a stand on. And I think it was easier back then because kind of every conversation with the internet was about expanding copyright or expanding surveillance. And the right answer was, don't do that. Don't expand copyright law. Don't expand surveillance. And I think it's just gotten a lot harder than that. Right. It was like Viacom versus YouTube or the government wants to spy on you. Yep. And those were strike zones for the EFF. In every article, there would be someone quoted from the EFF. The EFF had a position. I had a free the mouse sticker on my laptop to protest nice. the Disney Copyright Extension Act, the nice. Sonny Bono Copyright Extension Act. Things have gotten exponentially more complicated since then. And yep. I'm not sure that the positions on issues like that are as simple as they used to be. Well, you can use Mickey Mouse as an example. Like the addict I am, I was looking at Twitter before we started the show, <laughs> and Republicans in Florida are trying to punish Disney 
for its stance against the don't say gay bill in Florida and has come out vocally against that bill. That seems like a pure exercise of free speech by Disney. Yep. And the Republican legislature is passing some laws to remove its special tax district. And then they're saying, we're going to do some stuff about copyright law. We've gotten too many copyright extensions. The next thing we'll do is take that away. That's yep. a real ends justifies the means moment, right? Like that's the thing I've been thinking about. Yeah. How are you balancing that and saying, well, actually the, the copyright extensions have gotten out of control at Disney's behest, but here it's just pure retaliation. So we don't want to get involved. I mean, basically what I tell corporate folks all the time is when you do the right thing, we'll stand with you. And when we do the wrong thing, you're, we're going to be your strongest critics. We don't decide whether we like Disney or not. We decide what is Disney doing and is it the right thing? And when they're doing the right thing, we stand with them. And when they're not, we're not. And this has happened for us with Apple, for instance, right? You know, when Apple stood up against the FBI and said, we're not going to break into people's phones, we were right there with them. We were big and loud and we participated. But recently, again, Apple decided it was going to change course and scan people people's phones for certain purposes. And we were the biggest, loudest voice against them. I think similarly for Disney, we're not fans of, you know, the retaliation isn't something that we're ever going to support, but we are going to say what we think about copyright term extensions. And we think copyright term extensions are bad and we're not going to change our position just because the people advocating for them are people we disagree with on other things. I think that holding your principles throughout the changing political winds is part of the reasons why people trust us and why they give us our money, that we're, we're not going to wave in the wind. So we're we're going to say what we think. And if, if the topic comes up, we're going to talk about it, you know, and you can look to our history and see what we're going to say most of the time. So again, uh, you know, we, we can't be bought. Nobody's going to come and give us money to do this kind of thing. I'm not going to accept that kind of money, but we will say what we think no matter what the political wins are. And I, again, I just think in the long term, that's how you build a trustworthy organization. I think my question is that I, I buy you on trust. I think my question is in this environment, is that how you build a politically effective organization? Because it is so complicated when you have pretty notably bad actors in the Florida case openly retaliating with a thing that really good faith actors have wanted for a long time, that thing itself gets poisoned. It's a problem, right? I mean, it's it's a huge problem in free speech, right, as well. I mean, in the context of the Florida thing, I think it's less of a worry just because copyright is federal. And so the state of, I don't know what the state of Florida is going to do around. I mean, there's some state copyrights, but they're preempted and I don't yeah. think that's going to go away. So while it's an interesting thought experiment, if it grows to be a real problem, then we have to confront some hard issues. But I think it's unlikely to. But again, free speech is an issue where, you know, we have cared about free speech for a very long time. We actually know what it means, which doesn't mean that every time somebody tells you 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 said something rotten, they violated your free speech. And that's true whether they're a company or an individual. But I just feel like right now in this world, people are looking for something they can trust. They're looking for something that doesn't waver in the wind of politics. And if you want an organization that wavers in the wind of politics, then, you know, find somebody else other than the FF. There are plenty of them. <laughs> but we are a nonpartisan 501c3. We make our stances based on the issues. And I believe that that will serve us in the long run. It may be in the short run that that puts us in some uncomfortable positions. But I think that in the fullness of time, those positions end up being vindicated and that we're better off with that. But it's weird, right? It's weird to be somebody who stands on principle in this time when that's not the currency of the day. The currency of the day is what tribe are you in? Yeah. And, you know, we're not. We're doing something different. Happily, I think our membership supports that. And I think we've continued to grow and be stronger. And again, it may mean that in a particular instance, we're put in a slightly uncomfortable position, but in the long run, I think it, it serves us. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about surveillance and how government and corporate surveillance are different, but largely becoming the same. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? 
Now, what do suspiciously cheap stakes have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back with Cindy Cohen. Let me ask you about another one of these balancing acts that you might have to do. You mentioned Apple. They hate it, by the way. Apple hates it when you call it scanning the phone, but it's like the quickest way of describing what they're doing. Yeah. Well, that that's actually what they're doing. It's called client-side scanning for a reason. And, <laughs> you know, client-side, that means your phone, people. You yeah. know, don't, don't let that cover you. They're scanning your phone. I will just accept the emails when they come in. I just know they're going to come. Yeah, I will tell, them. tell them to send them to me. I'm happy. We've had these conversations. <laughs> we have to say we have conversations with them privately, like with most of the tech companies. If what you're doing is correctly described, I, I'm not going to, you know, that's what we're that's what we're going to call it. Fair enough. So Apple is doing that right They're looking on your phone for images that match a database and then potentially doing something if the images match the database. Yep. That is surveillance, right? And in, in sort of the small definition of that. When I think of surveillance, historically, you think about the government surveilling you. Private companies, big private companies surveilling you is something different. Yes. It's not something you can point a lawyer at necessarily, unless you can find some statute that says it's illegal. There don't appear to be too many of those. You've got to point activism at that. On the flip side, if the government were to write a bunch of regulations determining what these companies could do, you might end up with some things that infringe on their rights or the rights of users. Mm -hmm. So phone scanning is one where you can't just like point lawyers at it. I would say social network moderation is definitely like right in the crosshairs. Yep. If the government starts writing speech regulations about what moderation policies are acceptable, that seems like a very bad outcome. And we have those, right? We have the must carry laws in Texas and in Florida. So this, this is absolutely happening. At the same time, we want those companies to behave better mm -hmm. because they are the actual power that the users see. The line I keep going to is I think more people are aware of YouTube's copyright policy than like the speed limit, like five miles away from their house, <laughs> right? Like they, they just encounter it more. How are you balancing that? How do you think about balancing between we want to keep the government away from this, but there's actually no countervailing pressure aside from just raw activism that ever gets these companies to change? You're exactly right. EFF has developed something called the Santa Clara Principles, which are basically how to apply due process and fairness in the context of content moderation. And we use the bully pulpit to yell at them and, and try to get them to do the right thing. There are many people inside these organizations who want the companies to do the right thing. I think that one of the things we try to do is give an outside point of reference for what the right thing to do is. And we've seen some changes 
I mean, on content moderation, I don't think that there can be a regulatory structure that won't violate the First Amendment, at least not the ones that I've seen proposed so far. There's some possibilities around uh, 14th Amendment anti-discrimination laws where you could see a few things going, but it's pretty hard. So our shift on this is, you know, we not only yell at the companies and make as much noise as we can, especially around the way content moderation disproportionately affects marginalized people. I think sometimes because of the way the media works internationally, we know more about the four or five conservative people who've been subject to content moderation than the millions of people who are not rich white conservatives who get silenced every day. And if you look where we sit and you look globally, the problem of people being censored is if you're counting heads, much, much bigger among marginalized people than it is among the people who have already big access to the megaphones. I think that's the thing to keep in mind, because if you're setting your answer to the problem based upon a not very clear vision about where the problem happens, you're going to end up in the wrong place. And that's what these must carry laws are doing. They're really responding to a minority concern, not a majority concern about censorship. Um, So, you know, we pound on them. We look for angles for things that we can do. We again, this is one where, you know, there have been many attempts to try to sue the big content companies claiming that they are somehow like the government. They are the government. And so they should act like the government. And we stand with them on that. They're not the government and we shouldn't treat them like the government. I also think some of the people bringing those cases wouldn't like the outcome if we treated them like the government anyway, like common carrier kinds of arguments are, I think, uh, not only wrong, but won't do what the people who are putting them forward think they will do. So we participate all over the map on these kinds of things. But the other thing that we kind of realized a few years ago and have started doing is that, you know, the answer to having, you know, a dictatorship by a bunch of big companies is not to put different people in the chair of being the dictator. It's to get rid of the dictators. And so a lot of the work that we're doing is about how to reintroduce competition in social networking, in messaging, in app stores, in the things that we rely on all the time. Because replacing Zuckerberg as king with somebody else shouldn't be our strategy. Our strategy is to not have any kings anymore. I think I would do a great job in that role. I just want to be perfectly clear about that. You know, we all would. (laughs) You know, I certainly would. What did George W. Bush say? A dictatorship would be a heck of a lot easier. Um, You know, a a benevolent dictatorship is, you know, that's fabulous. But we we really don't have any Richard V's, right? Uh, You know, the the good kings. (laughs) We need need no kings. Uh, I'm an American. The king-based strategy is not the right strategy. And making billionaires into kings is not the right way forward forward. What we need is a bunch of different options. And that puts you in some different places. It makes you start thinking about antitrust law. And we support a lot of the reforms to antitrust law that is happening right now. We also think that things like interoperability, like real adversarial interoperability. Now, this is something that gets a little geeky pretty fast, but you should have a bunch of different ways to interact with your social media information, and you should be able to pick the community that you want to do it. Mark Zuckerberg shouldn't be in charge of what you see in your social media feed. You could pick Mark's if you want, but you ought to have like a hundred other options, including like your local Kiwanis club or, you know, the hackerspace down the road and be able to pick and choose among things for what your interface looks like, what the recommendation engine is prioritizing and how that works. And, you know, that means we got to build a network that looks a little more like the original internet and not like these gigantic platforms uh, that we've evolved into. And so, you know, EFF, because we have this mix of lawyers and technologists and people who are deeply engaged with the technology has really championed this as a piece of the story about how we got out of the problem of social media is there's some tech things that we could harness. We all were able to have the home internet revolution uh, because AT&T was required by the FCC to let you plug something else into the wall. Yeah, this is the Carter phone case. Right. AT&T said, if anything gets plugged into our phone network other than our phones, the you know security will go crazy and the world will fall apart. And the FCC said, no, it's a decision called Carter Phone. It's a set of decisions, but that was the first one that let us plug our modems in 
to the telephone line and get the internet into our houses. So we've done this before. It was a mix of regulation and innovation. And that's one of the things, again, I know this is kind of a long digression from where you started, but it's because the problem of trying to fix social media at scale is so hard that if we really want to get back to a place where we have privacy, we have free speech that includes empowering marginalized voices, we, we really need to start thinking about how to have real competition in these technologies. I, I just want to push on that a little bit. I'm, I'm with you. I just think that for a civil liberties organization to say, actually, what we need to do is deploy state power to regulate large corporations, it's a strange turn, right? It's, it takes you kind of away from the user and directly into the fray of, well, this law is just one corporation versus another corporation, right? Like, Many competitors to app, Epic Games would love for the antitrust laws to be rewritten in this country. I don't think that they have a civil liberties posture in mind at the end of that. Well, no, I think that there are, um, as with many things, people can have different values that they go into the conversation with. I think from our perspective, it's a civil liberties problem when free speech and privacy are beholden to just a few gigantic companies that have a business model, right? And I, I throw privacy in here. We talk about free speech a lot because it takes up all the air in the room and I think it's not unimportant, but like the surveillance business model is why, you know, these companies are so profitable and why it's so hard to take them down. And so I think that if you care about civil liberties, you just can't ignore the problem with the, you know, as my friend, a couple friends say, uh, Cory Doctor is one of them, that, you know, the internet has become five giant tech companies using screenshots of the other four, right? Mm -hmm. We have to create competition if we want to create the preconditions for real civil liberties. Does that involve governments? I don't think it has to, but I think there's ways that governments, just like with the Carter phone decision, you know, it's it's not whether to regulate or not to me as much as is the regulation standing with users and spurring innovation or not. And I think that I would love to have Facebook decide that they were going to, you know, open up their APIs and let you build a front end to Facebook that let you look at all your social media at once which is what a little company called Power Ventures built a few years ago. And they got sued into a smoking hole by Facebook <laughs> using the anti-hacking laws. So laws are here, right? Mm -hmm. Facebook protects its monopoly by having laws. So if we want to undo that monopoly, we're going to have to look at some of the laws that they use to protect themselves. So, you know, as somebody who came up in the Internet in the 90s, it's definitely the case that government can do really dumb and awful things, you know, and in the 90s, it was because they didn't understand at all what people online were doing. Now it's a little different. They often do understand, but they get swayed by one big company or another. And I would be very happy to get to this more competitive future in the current context. But I think a lot of laws and a lot of structures of the way things going are keeping us feeling stuck in this time. And it's fair to inquire about whether we could do something better. What would Carter phone for social media look like? I want to talk about that a little bit more, but I, first I just want to grab onto something you said. You said take them down in relation to the big companies. Is that the goal, to take them down? Not necessarily, but if we have to take them down in order to get the goal of empowering users and putting them back in the driver's seat, I'm not opposed to it. So I think that's different. It may take you to the same place. I don't have a problem with companies being big or rich. But the side effects of that on whether people can speak on their privacy and on the digital world that we're living in, I want to fix that. I want to, you know, we're, how to fix the Internet. And if, if we can't fix the Internet while having the current tech giants and the current, you know, billionaires in charge, then we got to get them out. But the question is, how do we get to the end goal where users are empowered, people have real choices and people have privacy again? Um, and then you see where that takes you. As I said, we didn't really decide to get into thinking about competition at EFF because we, you know, we needed a bigger mandate. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> we decided because we started seeing intractable problems that we felt were not going to be fixable unless we really started talking about how to bring competition back to digital services. Because there's no, Facebook trying to do content moderation at scale is not working. 
Mm-hmm. And I think everybody agrees it's not working. It's not working in very different directions. Again, I think it's over-censoring marginalized voices. It may be under-censoring other kinds of voices. There's no due process. People don't understand. And again, YouTube's another one. Like, People may feel like YouTube's copyright policy is tremendously important to them, but boy, is it opaque, mm-hmm. right? You can't figure it out. We have to help people all the time who get taken down for weird reasons and the fact that we kind of have a hotline to YouTube to say, look, that you just did this dumb thing. Like, that doesn't scale. So we grew out of those problems. And honestly, the surveillance business model and how do you protect people's privacy? Because, I mean, back to a thing that you said, government surveillance and corporate surveillance are very different things as a legal matter. But corporate surveillance is feeding government surveillance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I've been suing over the NSA tapping into AT&T's phone network since 2006 and 2007, but they also show up at Google's front door and do a reverse IP lookup warrant. And they know all of the innocent people who were in the vicinity of a crime, despite having no probable cause against them. That's because Google has all that information and is subject to government requests for it. So, I know I'm getting far afield again, but people sometimes ask me, you know, are you more worried about government surveillance or corporate surveillance? And and I'm like, well, if you don't think that government surveillance relies on corporate surveillance, then you haven't been paying attention, my friend. They are not two distinct categories anymore and haven't been for a very long time. So sorry, I, I ran I, I, I went <laughs> off from your question. No, I, I think this is the heart of it, right? And, and almost every issue that you can think of in tech right now, whether it's surveillance or privacy or interop or free speech, however anyone wishes to define that at this moment in time, whether copyright law, there is a set of powerful corporate actors that actually are the first touch points for users and the users care about their actions more. And then there's the legal framework that they operate in. And the government is much more theoretically restricted in what it can do than any of the companies. Yes. Which I think also makes the regulation that they can impose much more potentially restricted, especially when it comes to speech and surveillance and security. Yeah, and they have a big range inside the kind of realm of contract law, you know, those Mm click-throughs to do a whole bunch of stuff. But this isn't the only thing we do, but there's also a lot of law supporting them that I think we need to inquire about. EFF has spent years working on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. As I mentioned, Facebook used the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and some state laws that do the same thing to crush a competitor that was offering users a different interface into Facebook. There's a little company called HiQ that was sued by LinkedIn for offering a service that was based on scraping publicly available information off of LinkedIn. And, you know, we were able to get the Supreme Court to interpret the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in a better way. And then the Ninth Circuit just confirmed that, you know, scraping a public website in order to create a competing product is not a violation of the anti-hacking laws. So on the one hand, the companies have a lot of space in their contractual and other areas to do things, but it's important to remember that they rely on laws sometimes to protect their monopolies. And we need to start talking about, about that as well. We have to take one more break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Web3 and inevitably Elon Musk. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Tom Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It will be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com We're back. 
I just want to add a quick note. Uh, we recorded this episode last week when Elon was talking about buying Twitter, but before the Twitter board accepted the offer to purchase the company. I just wanted to give you that context for this part of the conversation. Okay, let's go back to my interview with Cindy Cohen. One thing you've mentioned a few times now is interoperability, true interoperability. A theme on Decoder over the past few months is Web3, the blockchain. Mm -hmm. We just had Chris Dixon on who's spending billions of dollars to tell you that the future of the web is interoperable and based on blockchains. Yep. Is that something that the EFF is involved in? Is it something you're advocating in? Is it something your technologists are building? We aren't building anything right now, but we are paying attention to decentralization and, and also in some ways to make sure that all this money that's flooding in here doesn't end up creating just the new bosses the same as the old bosses, right? Yes, we are interested in the possibility that the blockchain and decentralized services could be one of the pieces of helping us create a better world. There's ways in which it, it can. And, you know, my friend Brewster Kale at the Internet Archive has been convening a lot of things around a decentralized web to try to help get out of some of these problems, right? So we think that there is promise here. We think there's an awful lot of grift here too and trying to, you know, make sure that we recognize the babies in the bathwater and don't throw the whole thing out while at the same time, you know, making sure that that those babies actually survive the big grift Ponzi scheme feel of a lot of what's going on in in the in this world is kind of you know we feel like we need to do it honestly I feel like we don't have much of a well we obviously have a choice we pick what we do but this is big it's important and there are some values in here that if we could vindicate we'd end up in a better place but it's not guaranteed and if we aren't in there and people of goodwill aren't in there trying to make sure that this thing ends up creating good and not just creating bad or fleecing people, then I'm not sure it'll automatically happen. So I think it's it's one of those situations where we feel like we have something to say. We feel like we understand the difference between what's possible and good and what's not, and that it would be kind of unethical for us in terms of our values to just walk away because there's so much grift going on. <laughs> So that's that's what we're doing. And the other thing we've been doing is, you know, when people want to make interoperable things, we want to support them. You know, we have a whole set of what we do called coders rights. And I think a lot of these efforts to try to build, you know, a decentralized social network and all of those things, they they do run into problems with the law. And we try to help people where we can, uh, especially for people who've got like open source projects or other things where they don't have money for lawyers, but maybe building something that the world needs to have. So we're involved. We have been trying to basically be the sensible people in the room who understand the potential of the technology, but also the pitfalls. So we've only had a few minutes left. Let me add all of this up and then add the absolute chaos bomb of Elon Musk to the equation. <laughs> um, we're you know in a, sp a spot right now where Elon is talking about buying Twitter. We'll see if he can do it or not. He thinks that Twitter should change its content moderation policies in some way, totally undefined, but more free speech, whatever that means in that context. Uh, less moderation is basically what we assume he means. Uh, the current CEO of Twitter, Prague Agarwal, is saying maybe Twitter should be a protocol. They have a, a thing called Blue Sky where they're going to attempt to turn Twitter into a protocol. Jack Dorsey has endorsed this. That's a lot of swirl. Right around a core social networking product that is run by you know one billionaire, maybe a different billionaire is going to run it. Does EFF engage in that? Is that something? Is that just beyond the sort of office gossip distraction? Is that a okay? We're a user rights organization. We have a lot of thoughts on all these things. We can and should engage here and try to push towards an outcome. Or are you just waiting for the chips to fall? Um, we're engaged a little. Um, and again, we're just on the issues that we know. I mean, you know, I don't hang out with billionaires, so it's not like <laughs> I can meet them in the club and tell them what I think. I think uh, a lot of billionaires are EFF fans. I feel like you could I, definitely get in the game if you want to. Well, you know, Jack certainly has said that on occasion. And I think Blue Sky does, you know, the original idea of turning Twitter back into, not even into, but back into a protocol because, you know, Twitter used to be able to have other, you know, TweetDeck and all these other uh, ways. They, they had an open API and you could have a different front end to it. And then they locked all that down a few years ago. And we have 
for a long time called on Twitter to go back to being, you know, open API and to allow not just interoperability, but a- adversarial interoperability, which we call competitive compatibility, which is it's not you want people not to have to come to you on bended knee for permission because that ends up giving the main player too much power. So, yeah, we called on Twitter to do the thing. And when Twitter, when Jack announced Blue Sky, it did seem like he had heard us, and we weren't the only ones, but had heard us say, like, you need to think about your role differently and move away from the platform mentality towards a protocol mentality. And, you know, just all credit due to my friend Mike Masnick, who really first coined the, you know, protocols, not platforms framing of this, which I think is is right. So we think that's the right thing. There's a lot of dragons along the way in ways that it could not happen. I, I have to say that, you know, and Musk is saying he wants interoperability. I, I think a couple of the prominent crypto people have said they want that too. I think that's great, but I we could do this right and we could do this wrong. And I, I think if we just, you know, meet the new boss the same as the old boss, you know, with less content moderation, we won't have done this right. And I think, and many people have pointed out that there have been lots of attempts to have platforms with less content moderation and they pretty much either fail because people don't want to be in a place with all that dreck or they end up being just, you know, echo chambers for a few people who agree with you. I mean, that's okay. Those little echo chambers, I don't, I don't mind them, but they don't end up being the dominant place because, People run and hide from a place that's so toxic. Um, So I think that Musk is going to find out that you have to have content moderation and that it's very hard to do it at scale. If Twitter really does turn itself into an open protocol that lets people choose their own adventure on it and also lets them, you know, leave when they want to leave, I think that would be a very good thing. And I think, again, there are pitfalls along the way, but we'd like to see something like that happen. I'm not so sure Musk's vision and our vision is the same, but honestly, I've never talked to him. And and what he said about it is so cryptic that I think I I don't want to be unfair and just assume uh, one way or the other. But just because somebody says interoperability doesn't mean they're on the side of empowering users. There's a lot more to the story. Doesn't this all just come back to the tension that kind of we've been circling around, which is you certainly do not want the government writing a content moderation guideline. Right, you do not want the government going beyond the the boundary of the First Amendment that restricts it from writing speech regulations and saying, "Here are the content moderation guidelines for social networks in the United States." Like, you do not want that to happen. On the other hand, it seems like billionaires just deciding any way they want is a bad idea. And somewhere in the middle is a somewhat hazy but coming into focus notion of there should be protocols for social networks. You should be able to pick your client maybe pick your filter. If you are an unhinged person, you could pick no filter and take the full fire hose of crazy. Most people will pick a default or maybe you'll like pay a company and there'll be market competition for like user interfaces and content moderation. And I think there's, there should be a nonprofit sector of that as well. And maybe even a public sector, you know, my friend Ethan Zuckerman says, well, maybe we have a public TV version of social networking too. You know, the, um, so I think there's a possibility here. Sorry, but I, I cut you off as you were getting to the question part. Well, it just seems like to get to that place, you have to tell the government, don't do speech regulations. You're not allowed to do it. But get in there and tell these companies exactly what to do. Because the market is not going to take you to that place on its own. Right. And so the EFF, it just seems like you're in a weird spot of being an activist, being like, don't do this government, but do a lot of this other thing that might be good. I mean, I just think that that's the reality of the world we live in. Like, I I don't think that anybody can say that. um, I mean, again, the law exists. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act exists. Mm -hmm. It helps support their monopolies right now. So if your frame is, you know, government always bad, all government always bad, all, you know, we can't ever use that lever. That lever's already being used to support the monopoly. So we have to be smarter than that. We have to think about, can government foster innovation? Then it ought to in the places that it can, and then it ought not to in the places that it cannot. It cannot write the rules for content moderation. It can create incentives as well as rules around blocking competitors. And 
doing things to diminish competitors. And it ought to do those. It's just not the only thing to bring to bear, though. Honestly, we need more funding heading into people who are trying to build competitors to the big companies. And if you talk to the VCs, there has been this idea that, you know, you just you just can't. You can't support anything that might compete with Google or might compete with Facebook. So there's work for people outside the government, too. I just don't want to put the government off the list of things we have to do. We need to pressure the VCs. We need to support the people who are trying to build innovations. We need to intervene like EFF did in the Facebook Be Power case to try to protect small competitors who find themselves being crushed. So there's some governmental things. There's a lot of non-governmental things we need to do. We just need to really envision the world we want to make and then find the levers where we can push toward it. Some of it may be for people to just build the thing, right? And use the thing, uh, you know, the, the the next new project. We used to have this cycle of innovation where, you know, a technology company would come along and it would own the world one day. Yahoo owns search, right? <laughs> and and MySpace owns social networking. And then the next one would come along with the next innovation and they would just eat their lunch. And, and that cycle has stopped. We have the same companies that we had 15, 20 years ago now in charge of our online experience. Uh, we need to do a whole bunch of things to shake that up. You know, it wasn't just one thing that got us into it. So it's not going to be just one thing they get it out. And and users, I think, are feeling hopeless and helpless. And I guess part of what I'm trying to hopefully do with, with our podcast and with coming on and talking to you about this is to, to help people feel like they have choices. We're not stuck in this world. We don't have the solutions yet, but we have some ways out and we should begin to work towards them. Well, Cindy, this has been an incredible conversation. I know you've got to go. We'll have you back on Decoder soon. Thank you so much oh, for joining us. I'd be delighted. Thanks. Thanks again to Cindy Cohen for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. Here's a secret. If you tweet at me about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.